BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The parliamentarian of the Senate, a woman by the name of Elizabeth McDonough, and, uh, you know, I'm not uh, indicting her, as it were, you know, but uh, I I frankly know nothing about her. Um, But she's the one who decides how the rules get interpreted, the Senate rules get interpreted. And she has concluded that adding a minimum wage provision to the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, this this disaster relief bill uh, around COVID that the uh, Democrats are trying to get into the House and Senate would make it un, um, unusable for reconciliation. Would, would mean that reconciliation could not be used to pass it. Reconciliation is a process where you can do it once or twice a year in the Senate, it allows you to get around a filibuster, so you don't need 10 Republican votes to pass anything. You can just do it with Democrats. And the um, thing is, though, that her opinion is not binding. Her opinion is merely an opinion. In fact, when the Republicans were trying to pass legislation by reconciliation, and I'm, I've got to look up which bill it was that they were trying to pass specifically, but the parliamentarian ruled against them and said, you can't do that by reconciliation, and they fired the parliamentarian. Literally fired the parliamentarian, Mitch McConnell. You're out of here. And put in a new parliamentarian who said, oh, sure, you can, you can do that by reconciliation. So the question now is, you know, are the Democrats going to do what Republicans have done and say, we're going to ignore the parliamentarian, we're going to pass this anyway, because it's really just a kind of kabuki theater thing. Or are the Democrats going to say, we're going to end the filibuster, because without a filibuster, they could pass this legislation also. They wouldn't even have to resort to, to, uh, to reconciliation. Or are they going to give in? Now, Nancy Pelosi is saying, we're going to keep the $15 minimum wage in the bill. Keep in mind, you know, blue states around the country... The minimum wage in Michigan, $9.65 an hour. The minimum wage in Vermont, $10.50 an hour. The minimum wage in New York, $11.80 an hour. Rhode Island, $10.50. Massachusetts, $12.75. Connecticut, $12. Maryland, $11. That's blue states. California, $13. Washington State, $13. Here in Oregon, it's $12 an hour. Those are the minimum state minimum wages. Red states, 
Oh, and Hawaii is $10.10 an hour. Red states, well, in Alabama, there is no minimum wage law. In Mississippi, there is no minimum wage law, so the minimum wage is zero. In Georgia, it's $5.15 an hour. In Arkansas, it's $6.50 an hour. This is state minimum wage. In Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, $7.25 an hour. I mean, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, $7.25 an hour. So there is a, a bit of a difference here between red states and blue states. And, and in addition to the minimum wage, what the, the other thing that you discover is that blue states tend to be prosperous. They are the maker states. And the red states tend to be in massively in debt. They are the taker states. For every dollar that uh, Kentucky sends to, to Washington, D.C., they get back about three bucks. And for every dollar California sends to Washington, D.C., they get back less than a dollar. And this is just kind of universal right across the board. So anyhow, the question is, are the Democrats willing to play hardball on this thing? And we don't know the answer. And an awful lot of it is going to be up to Chuck Schumer. And the House does pass a bill that has the minimum wage in it, a minimum wage increase, which will lift 27 million people out of poverty over a five-year period. Then Chuck Schumer has to decide whether, and actually it's Kamala Harris's call, if they're going to ignore the parliamentarian. She has, the vice president is, has basically one job defined in the Constitution, in addition to being there if the president croaks. Um, but, the, but the one job that the, the vice president has is to be the president of the Senate. And so Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, has the power to say, we're going, I, I, you know, I'm going to overrule the parliamentarian, and I'm going to say, as the president of the Senate, that my interpretation of the rules, that this does comport with reconciliation, is the way it's going to be, period. Kamala Harris has that power. And that power has been used in the past, by the way, by both Democrats and Republicans who, are, who were leading the Senate. Lyndon Johnson did it back in the day when he was the, the Senate Majority Leader. That has been used before that way. But will she do it? Or alternatively, will Chuck Schumer say, okay, I am going to bring a, a resolution to the floor to change the rules of the Senate to end the bird rule and end reconciliation. Or actually, he doesn't even have to do that. He could simply say, I'm going to bring a, 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 a motion. I believe that would be the right word. I mean, I'm not a Senate parliamentarian at all. Uh, but whatever the correct language is here, basically, we're going to change the rules of the Senate, which are reestablished every two years when there's a new Congress. It's the first thing that the Senate votes on. We're going to change the rules of the Senate to say that the uh, filibuster no longer exists. The filibuster was put into place in the late 1830s by John C. Calhoun, the senator from South Carolina, specifically to be used to forbid discussion of the abolition of slavery. That's why the filibuster was put into the Senate rules in the late 1830s. It was used exclusively from the time John C. Calhoun, the father of the Confederacy, put it in the Senate rules until 1865. It was used exclusively to prevent any discussion in the Senate of abolishing slavery. 
The House had their own version of it. Uh, they actually passed a law against discussing the abolition of slavery on the floor of the House, which John Quincy Adams delighted in breaking every single day, that law. But in the Senate, it was the filibuster. And then from 1865 to 1964, for 99 years, the filibuster was used only for one thing, 100% of the time. The filibuster was exclusively used to fight civil rights legislation. From 1865 until 1964. But since the 60s, the filibuster has been used mostly by Republicans to try to block any kind of legislation that might help average working Americans. And I think it's time to say, you know, the, the, the filibuster, uh, you know, like the Confederacy, should go. Either we believe in democracy or we don't. And this should be the speech that Chuck Schumer gives when he announces this, if he has any kind of spine. Every single person in this body, in this Senate, if they won their election by one single vote, would take their seat in the Senate. They wouldn't sit back and say, well, you know, I, I do need some bipartisan. I do, I, I do need, you know, uh, more than just one vote to win an election. I need, you know, at least, a, you know, 10,000 extra votes to win. an election. You know, none of them, not a single senator would be saying that. So why are they saying if you want to pass a piece of legislation, you can't pass it with a one vote majority? I, either we believe in democracy or we don't. Why do you have to have a one vote majority plus 10 Republicans? What kind of crazy is that? Oh yeah, that's right, it's John C. Calhoun crazy. It's white supremacist crazy. It's Confederate crazy. It's going to be an interesting few days here as, uh, as Chuck Schumer decides what, and Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, decide what they're going to do. Back with your calls. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? I'd just like to ask you a question about the, the common conservative argument that I hear is, you know, oh, about welfare. Oh, why do you want your money going to people who um, don't want to work? I've seen studies that say most welfare recipients do, in fact, work. But how would you respond to that argument when conservatives say, oh, why, why do you want your money going to people who don't want to work, who just want to live off welfare? How would you respond to that? I, I would say essentially what you just said, Dennis. Whenever, whenever you're trying to accomplish some sort of social good, there is a price to pay for it. And the fact of the matter is that you know most studies show that it's somewhere between two and four percent of the population, given the chance, would take money without working, right, for, forever. I mean, just you know, have no interest in, in working at all. Um, the majority of people find value in work. They find they find you know uh, even even working at McDonald's. They, they you know they're, they're, you're, you're, you have social interactions. You you have a paycheck. You have some pride in what you're doing. The majority of people want to work. But if you're going to have a program that is going to establish a floor that people don't fall through, which is essentially what welfare programs are, they're designed to prevent people from you know having their lives destroyed by you know, a, a terrible incident in their life, you know, they become disabled in an accident, or capitalism fails and, you've, and you slide into another Republican Great Depression, something like that. People's lives should not be destroyed because of circumstances that they can't, they can't uh, handle. The vast majority of people on welfare are working, actually. 
and 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 even though yeah but well there's that too and 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 even those who are not working typically want to work but there's always going to be two three four percent of the people who are going to be freeloaders i'm willing to subsidize the freeloaders as the price that i pay with my tax dollars the the probably 30 40 50 cents a year that i'm paying for the freeloaders out of my tax dollars i'm willing to pay that so that you know a few dollars you know and probably a few dozen or a few hundred dollars of, of my annual income goes to support people who have fallen on hard times um, there's just no way around that you you know and and we've seen this as uh, over the years i mean this is this is there, uh, there was a great article about this i think in daily Kos a couple of days ago about kansas republicans i think i talked about it on the air on wednesday that the republican party in kansas cut um, unemployment benefits down to, uh, they cut it in half. It was a half a year. They cut it down to a quarter of a year, I think 13 weeks, as I recall. I'm, I'm, but anyhow, they cut it in half, and then they added all these work requirements, and you've got to go in, and you've got to log in, and you've got to prove it, you know, quack, quack, quack. And what they're finding is that, you know, when they were just trying to prevent poor people from getting benefits, eh, okay, you know, nobody was yelling and screaming about it. But now that you've got, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people in Kansas who are who are not poor people, who are you know hitting uh, yeah, unemployment and need welfare as a result of the, the the economic crash. It's not available to them because the Republicans tightened the screws so much in that state, and it's producing some outrage. So I would just say, yeah, you, you know, you're always going to have freeloaders, Dennis, and and uh, subsidizing a few freeloaders is a price that I'm perfectly willing to pay in order to make sure that the vast majority of people, when they fall on hard times, don't end up in a disaster. Philip in Brookings, South Dakota. Hey, Philip, what's up? What's on your mind? Yeah, I just wonder, um, there's a robot they landed on Mars. Is mm-hmm. that privately funded or is that our tax money? And if it's our tax money, why are we blowing money going up there? That's all I well, yeah, it's it's your tax dollars at work, Philip. It, it absolutely is, and and you know probably you contributed you know five cents, maybe ten cents to it, maybe even twenty or thirty cents. Who knows? But this is basic science stuff, and I think that a nation that can't do basic science. I mean, look at all the benefits we got from the original um, moonshot. That that program brought us not just Tang and Velcro, but major innovations, major technological innovations. I'm fine spending a little bit. I mean, it's an insignificant amount of money compared to what we're spending on the military, for example. I'm fine with it, Philip. I get it that you're not, but respectfully, I disagree. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. It's an important story that's not getting enough attention. Kosovo just had an election. Their liberal government's back in power after Trump blew it up by staging a coup and getting Richard Grinnell, our U.S. special envoy, to put pressure and and blow up their government, replace them with conservatives, which the country's court found to be unconstitutional. So they recently had an election. The liberal government's back in power. But why did Trump help to stage the coup in in Kosovo? Well, because he... had a photo op in the White House so he could take credit for ending the war between Serbia and Kosovo and somehow conflate that with Middle East peace. And uh, in the process of putting that corrupt conservative government in just a short time in Kosovo, uh, 
they ended up with the same problems we have. COVID spread all over the country, uh, 30% unemployment. So there's a great story to be told because now we have uh, a liberal democratic government back in power in Kosovo, and uh, it's no thanks to Donald Trump. You know, I know almost nothing about this, Jonathan. Can you recommend a source where I could learn more about it? Yeah, well, there's a fantastic article uh, in Al Jazeera. It's Kosovo. It's called Kosovo is slowly recovering from Trump's coup, and it's mm -hmm. written by a professor, uh, assistant professor of philosophy at the Institute of Social Sciences uh, in Humanities. His name is uh, Agan Hamza. And if you mm -hmm. just Google uh, a little bit and put in like Trump signs peace deal with Kosovo and Serbia, all kinds of articles will come up in Forbes and Newsweek. But it just was a story that really never got a lot of traction. But it, it, right. it's it's analogous to what happened with the whole <clears throat> impeachment fiasco with Ukraine, right? I mean, that's kind of it was sort of an extension of what Trump was trying to do there. They had you know <clears throat> Biden was trying to get the government back in the day to to, to uh, uh, institute anti-corruption laws, and Trump was trying to corrupt it. And that's exactly yeah. what he did with Kosovo. Right. Using foreign policy for domestic political purposes, too. Yeah. That's fascinating. Jonathan, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to do a little more research before I can offer any kind and, of an opinion. But quickly, um, just very quickly, a happy Purim to everyone in the audience. That was a story of triumph over tyranny. Yeah. So people are, are rattling cans in Jerusalem right now. Um, they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been there during Purim. It's wild. It's sort of like Halloween here. Um, okay, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, that is a, it is a marvelous story, too, of uh, Queen Esther, as I recall. Russ in Hickory Hill, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to WCPT. Well, thanks for taking my call. You know, before I get to my questions, um, they got a call about the conservatives. Maybe we should cut their space down to three months out of the year and talk about welfare. But what I call about is we've got to pass the Voting Rights Act, Tom. These two nitwits, I don't know what they're holding on for. I can see Joe Manson. He's the next believer, man. they got to get rid of him. But her in Arizona... I'm surprised. They well, here's the problem, Russ. If you got rid of Joe, if you if you got rid of Joe Manchin, you would have no ability to pass anything in the United States Senate. I mean, he, at least he's a Democrat. You know, get, let's give I him some really credit. He's he's there. Is he a true Democrat, though? I think he's you a know? true Democrat. I just, I, you know, I, I I disagree with some of his policy positions, but but he's taking those positions because he thinks those are the things that that people in West Virginia want. I I think in some cases he's wrong. Probably in other cases he's right. Um, you know, whether we're talking economics or guns or something like that. But yeah, um, but, you know, but I, you know, let's you know, let's cut the guy a little slack. Yeah, well, we lose this voting rights because what is it in Georgia? You're 75 years old. Yeah, Russ, your, your phone is just turning to mush here. I, you know, it's, I'm having a hard time hearing you, so I'm going to move along. But thank you for the call. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Jim, Voorheesville, New York. Hey, Jim, you're on the air. Hey, Tom, I have a question for you. The Patriot Act has provisions that we know of for dealing with terrorism. Does it differentiate between domestic and international terrorism? Yes, it does. And the reason for that was the concern that a rogue president could use the uh, rubric of domestic terrorism to do like J. Edgar Hoover did, basically, to harass Americans. 
Okay, I see that. Because we did use the Patriot Act to charge and try the American citizen who was over in, uh, was it Afghanistan or Iraq? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, was, it was in Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and yeah. we've used it. Uh, we've used it against uh, whistleblowers. Um, we've used it against. I mean, they're, they're, we've used it against people in the intelligence agencies. But it's always been that they have been, uh, you know, participating in or or their actions have bounced against foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, Reality winner, okay. I believe, was prosecuted under the terrorist under the uh, Patriot Act. So I think it needs okay. to be updated, Jim. But that original concern of the slippery slope of designating people as domestic terrorists, I think is a legitimate concern. It's a concern that's shared among both conservatives and, and progressives. We need to be very careful with this. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Code Red by E.J. Dion Jr. It's how progressives and moderates can unite to save our country. This is from the introduction titled The Opportunity We Dare Not Miss. Will progressives and moderates feud while America burns? Or will these natural allies take advantage of a historic opportunity to strengthen American democracy and defeat an increasingly radical form of conservatism? The choice is in our politics is just that stark. This book is offered in a spirit of hope, but with a sense of alarm. My hope is inspired by the broad and principled opposition that Donald Trump's presidency called forth. It is a movement that can and should be the driving force in our politics long after Trump is gone. His abuses of office, his, his divisiveness, his bigotry, his autocratic habits, and his utter lack of seriousness about the responsibilities of the presidency drew millions of previously disengaged citizens to the public square and the ballot box. The danger he represented inspired young Americans to participate in our public life at unprecedented levels. Tens of thousands of Americans, especially women, have gathered in libraries, diners, and church basements to share wisdom, to organize, and in many cases to run for office themselves. 
These newly engaged citizens have created an opportunity to build a broad alliance for practical and visionary government, as promising as anything since the Great Depression gave Franklin Roosevelt a chance to build the New Deal coalition. To seize this opening, progressives and moderates must realize that they are allies who have more in common than they sometimes wish to admit. They share a commitment to what public life can achieve and the hope that government can be decent again. They reject the appeals to racism that have been Trump's calling card and the divisiveness at the heart of his electoral strategy. Together, they long for a politics focused on freedom, fairness, and the future. This new politics would be rooted in the economic justice that has always been the left's driving goal and in the problem-solving approach to government that moderates have long championed. It's true that these camps often battle over whether the nation should seek restoration or transformation in the years after Trump. In fact, our country needs both. To restore the democratic norms we have always valued, we must begin to heal the social and economic wounds that led to Trump's presidency in the first place. Yet there is resistance to common ground among progressives and moderates alike. They often mistrust each other's motives, battle fiercely over tactics, argue over how much change our country needs, and squabble over whether specific policy ideas go too far or not far enough. The moderate says, hey, progressive, you think that if you just lay out the boldest and most ambitious approach to any given problem, the people will rally to your side. Really? For one thing, people may like your objective, but think you're changing things way more than we have to. And we can battle to the death over, say, a Democratic Party platform plank or the first draft of a bill. But without the hard negotiating and compromising that legislative politics requires, a bold idea will remain just a platform plank. That really doesn't do anyone any good. You subject everyone to so many litmus tests that we might as well be in chemistry class. And God save us from your abuse on Twitter if we disagree with you. You lefties have no idea how to win elections outside of Berkeley or Brooklyn, and some of your ideas are so sweeping that they'll scare potential voters away. At this point, the moderate is likely to wield the sturdy old punchline, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But hold on, says the progressive. You moderates spend so much time negotiating with yourselves that you compromise away goals and priorities before the real battle even begins. Your ideas get so soggy and complicated that they mobilize no one and mostly put people to sleep. Better to have the courage of your convictions. Lay out your hopes plainly and passionately and inspire voters to join in. Besides, you middle-of-the-roaders were so petrified of Ronald Reagan and the right wing that you caved into the Gipper's economic ideas, let inequality run wild, and gave us a racist and grossly unfair criminal justice system. The extremists have pulled the political center so far right that the only way to back to sanity is to show our fellow citizens what a real progressive program looks like. At the risk of sounding like a perhaps unwelcome counselor attempting to ease a family quarrel, I would plead with moderates and progressives to listen to each other carefully. If the events since 2016 do not teach moderates and progressives that they must find ways of working together, nothing will. If they fail to heed each other's advice and take each other's concerns seriously, they will surrender the political system to an increasingly undemocratic right with no interest in any of their shared goals, priorities, and commitments. Moderates are right about the complexity of getting things done in a democracy. Even when the boldest ideas have prevailed, they did so because complex coalitions were built. Important, and it should be said often legitimate, interests were accommodated, and some lesser goals were left by the wayside to be fought for another day. Moderates are also right that democracy requires persuading those who are open to change but worry about how this or that reform might work in practice or affect them personally. Think losing their private health insurance. 
disdaining as sellouts those who raise inconvenient questions or express qualms is not the way to build a majority for reform. Moderates are also right that Americans in large number are tired of politics that involves more yelling than dialogue, more demonizing than understanding. But progressives are right to say that for the last three decades, moderates have spent too much time negotiating with themselves. Consider all the effort Democrats put into wooing Republicans by responding to their proposals to amend Obamacare. The book Code Red by E.J. Dion Jr. Well, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, just released a report pinning the blame for Jamal Khashoggi's murder, the American journalist, or the American-based journalist. He was a Saudi citizen, but he was here with a green card and, and working for the Washington Post, living in the Washington, D.C. area, um, who was uh, brutally murdered, dismembered, and uh, apparently his body was cut into little pieces and then was, was uh, reduced to ashes in a, uh, in a grill behind the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Uh, that that was ordered by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, sometimes referred to as Mohammed Bonesaw, MBS. And, um, and, and, and Joe Biden is reaching out to the king who is either MBS's father or his uncle. I thought he was his uncle, but yesterday on the news I heard him referred to as his father, so I may be wrong in that. Um, but in any case, the 85-year-old the king is the person that Joe Biden spoke with two days ago telling him that this was going to be coming out. And, uh, and of course, MBS is also the guy behind the war in Yemen. So we'll see where this leads. This is an interesting inflection point, shall we say, in uh, U.S.-Saudi relations over the years. So, uh, back to your calls here, uh, Liz in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Liz, you're on the air. What's up? Yeah, uh, Tom, uncap the House is uh, House Resolution 996. Al C. Hastings is Florida's longest-serving House of Representative member, and he has um, is pushing to make the House of Representative larger. It's at 435 there is no reason it can't be bigger. The intent was to have a representative for every 30,000 people. And right now we have a representative for every 750,000 people. So um, right. I wanted your reflection on that. I think it's a good idea. I think, it, you know, I think that the House of Representatives should be larger, at least a half a million people, you know, maybe more. Yeah, I think that's a fine idea. I, I had heard about Elsie Hastings putting that forward. Do you have any idea if it's going to get any traction? I mean, this this would require this doesn't requ would would it require amending the Constitution or is this simply passing a law? I don't know. Simply Do you? passing a law. It was uh, capped in 1911. By law, not by constitutional amendment. Exactly by law. So okay. um, someone in my legislative district thinks this is a great idea and. So if you ever wanted to have a program on it, there are, Barbara Lee has endorsed it. There is a Facebook page called Uncap the House. There are people <laughs> who would love to talk more about this. Okay, I'll check it out. Liz, thanks for the heads yeah, up on you. that and for the background information. I appreciate it. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Uh, you, Professor, I'm going to give you permission to use my intellectual property. Now, here we go. White okay. nationalism. White nationalism supersedes democracy, meritocracy, and obedience to law. 
Okay, you can go ahead and use that in one of your books. Also, you know, a false equivalence would be Islam- a false equivalence would be Islamic terrorists versus white nationalists in our country. Come on, y'all. I mean, they have the in terms of the quality of life, in terms of your quality of life as an American. Which one of them two organizations do you think has an immediate effect on your quality of life? An Islamic terrorist, three thousand, four thousand, seven thousand miles away, or a white nationalist, might, which might be your next door neighbor? Uh, but the reason why I call, and before I get to why I call another thing on that fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, President Biden, he might want to go centrist on this, and he might want to slow the roll on it. But uh, if the Republicans got a Jim Jordan, we got us a Jim Jordan. His name is Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is not going to let this die. And I'm glad the Speaker of the House is not going to let this die. And that caller that you had that was talking about the parliamentarian, she might start getting some unemployment checks, if she anticipates some unemployment checks, if she thinks she's going to be able to stop this $15 an hour movement. But this is why I call, Professor. Uh, do you know of a famous white person that is falling victim to a police execution or killing or shooting? Not a famous one. I mean, the last one that I recall was the guy who shot the Proud Boy here in Portland, and then the police tracked him down and executed him. Okay, well, he was okay. A white that, guy. That's what but that's not, that's a lot different than just walking across the street for jaywalking and find you know wind up dead. But I want to tell you one good thing yeah. that came out of the uh, the insurrection on January the sixth when they were talking about vetting the National Guard. We need to vet our police departments. If we can mm-hmm. vet the National Guard, we can vet our police departments. So we're going to get real about this. Let's get real and start vetting. All right. Thank you for this time, Professor. Have a nice day, sir. You're welcome. Thank you, Morris. You always get right to the issues. I really appreciate it. Adam in New Orleans. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? How's Louisiana? Hey, Tom. It's, it's, it's okay. So from where I'm sitting, we have a two-year runway, less than a two-year runway, to prevent the slide into fascism, because there's no guarantee that we're going to maintain control of Congress. So with that in mind, uh, and with a background in, in Six Sigma and other disciplines, uh, I'm looking at you know problem-solving disciplines, and they all begin with defining a problem. Otherwise, you end up with ready-shoot-aim. And I, I think the Democrats have, have sort of fallen into that. So I, I want your thoughts on the following problem statement, because I think if, if this is right, then it defines what happens afterwards. So controls are insufficient to prevent intentional corruption of the charters and constitutional intent of administration functions and bodies. So where I'm going with this as an example is I think Congress should have control of the inspector generals. I think we need to do something to prevent. I strongly disagree, Adam. When you put politicians in charge of the people who are basically the police, the people who are supposed to oversee the legitimate and proper function of individual agencies, you have now politicized the, what would the word be? The inspector generals are the ones that keep the agencies honest, and you don't want to politicize those. I know that you know Trump did that, right? He installed he an inspector. He, he, he replaced the inspector. Yeah, he he fired multiple ones and replaced them with Trump toadies, and that is not a good thing to do. I, th- I think the inspector generals need to be extraordinarily independent. Okay, so but from from problem statement perspective that the controls are insufficient to prevent that intentional corruption. Right now, I'm not seeing the Democrats come together saying, okay, after COVID, 
these this is the big issue because if we don't do this we are going to be a fascist government uh, very conceivably in the next two to four years so what is the next what is the big thing what is the big problem we're trying to solve in some measurable way so that they can get behind this uh, because it's we seem to be doing sort of a shotgun you know trying to fix all kinds of little things and it just feels like ready shoot aim so yeah. um uh, I, I think what we have to acknowledge adam is that there are two things at the core of the conservative agenda uh, what you know generally you could call the republican agenda although there are a few conservative democrats and those two things are fealty to money total loyalty to big big money whether it's corporate money or billionaire money and white supremacy and those two things are are both cancers within our society within our body politic and there's not enough discussion of either one of them frankly in the media in my opinion we're not honestly reckoning what we are actually facing and it just seems to me that until we do until we honestly uh, you know own up to this and say yeah you know the the republican party right now is is a white supremacist party openly nakedly look at the trump administration you know how many people of color did he did he put in any kind of position of power virtually none and the few that he did were loyal toadies and it's time to just own up to that you know that that the supreme court in 76 and 78 allowed big money to corrupt politics and that brought us the modern republican party and white supremacy has been a cancer in this country since 1619 since the the founding of jamestown no good thoughts i i just I, I'm sitting here uh, just just trying to, to think, okay, what would it I... It seems everything else is subordinate to, to those two things, Adam. Am I missing something? Right. No, no. I, I, I get the, the whole dollar thing, but you can't get money out of politics until you get uh, the controlling influence out of, of mainstream media. That's why it contributes to you, honestly. Yeah. So, in other words... Yeah. Well, it is a challenge. I mean, it is a big challenge. And that's, that's you know, we have monopolies in our media right now. And those, those monopolies are not serving the people either. Adam, I got to run. But thank you for the call. And thanks for your support here on the Tom Hartman program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment here on your media support group for We the People. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where despair is absolutely not an option, to quote Bernie Sanders. Stick around. John in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I've got a question for you. I want, I want somebody to explain to me what these Congress people are thinking. You know, if Trump had succeeded in the insurrection, they wouldn't have any power. I mean, in, in a dictatorship, Congress is irrelevant. So I don't understand what they think the upside for letting him slide on all this is. Yeah, well, I've got this book here, I Paid Hitler by Tyson, T-H-Y-S-S-E-N, published back in the 1940s. And Fritz Tyson was the German equivalent of Andrew Carnegie, you know, a steel baron. And he was of the opinion that he could ride that tiger, that he could, he could hitch his star to Hitler's because Hitler was a rising, you know, very, very popular figure in Germany right up until the, uh, well, right up until they started to lose World War II. And he thought he could control Hitler. And it turned out the other way around. And he ended up, you know, apologizing and writing a, a kind of humiliating autobiography called I Paid Hitler. 
And I think that that's that's what's going on right now. You had Mitch McConnell on Fox News saying, yes, I'd support Donald Trump in 2024. Trump is has seized control of the Republican Party and he's not going to let go. And Trump is not a, a believer in democracy or a Republican form of government, a republic. He's a believer in strongman okay, autocracy. What I don't. Yeah, but the, like these guys think they can work with him, wrong. People, some of these Congress people seem to think that, you know, it, they, they don't seem to be aware that the neoliberalism is, is dead. You're either going to have to move left or you're going to have to fall off on the right. Because they brought us to this point where there's such yeah. a huge division of wealth that we can't, we can't continue moving farther to the right without falling off. I and agree. the only answer is to move to the left. And uh, on the, To what's know, like, being referred to as the left. I would say it's the center, John, but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, if you consider the center of a table, and then we've moved so far to the right, we're about to fall off the right-hand side. Well, if but, any anything that you've got that's got more than 50% support among the American electorate, I think qualifies as being a centrist position. And that includes a massive infrastructure bill that would you know reduce our carbon emissions. That includes a $15 minimum wage. That includes free college. That includes everybody you know having a, a basically a free national health care program available to them or very, very inexpensive. All of those things have more than 50% support. In fact, all of those things have in the neighborhood of 50% or more support among Republicans. So those are clearly centrist positions. I mean, you want a left position, that would be, let's go through and and nationalize all the public utilities, which I'm in favor of. But that's a lefty position, right? (laughs) I remember hearing the Saturday that the AP called the election for Biden. I remember hearing CNN. I tuned into Fox, of course, because it wasn't real until it happened on Fox, because you got to get the Republican buy-in. And I thought, okay, well, if the Republicans have bought in, then, then Biden's won, and that's that. And so I switched over to CNN, and they were doing this show about, okay, how is Biden going to be moved back to the right? You know, moved, right. moved back to the center, and how's he going right. to negotiate with all the left, left-leaning people? And I just thought, you guys don't realize what, we, what just happened. Because no, they don't. They don't. They're, they're living in la-la land. They're living in, in this beltway bubble. You know, when I the, the the seven years that Louise and I lived in D.C., I really learned what this is, what the Beltway bubble is, and it's horrible. John, thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. There is so much going on. First and foremost, the $15 minimum wage, uh, an hour wage. I've called my representatives to encourage them to encourage, strongly encourage VP Harris to overrule the parliamentary, right? We didn't vote for this. We didn't vote for this person. I don't know what her background is. I don't know, does she, her family have business interests that would benefit them if it's fifteen if the $15 minimum wage is opposed? And the fact that Mitch McConnell was willing to keep her in office, uh, that doesn't encourage me. Because anybody yeah. Mitch McConnell wants to work with or has any amount of trust in makes me suspect. Tom, I I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask you as a business person, because the main pushback we hear, well, it'll cost uh, one million dollars, one million jobs will be lost if we increase the minimum wage. And, you know, that argument is always used every time the minimum wage increase is occurs. Oh, we're going to lose jobs. It's going to push people out. Tom, people don't know what people are doing right now for money. I mean, do you, they don't know. People are still not eating. But prior to the pandemic and now, you have no idea how many people are begging landlords to stay in their apartments. And when the begging doesn't work, then you start performing certain favors, specifically women performing certain favors in order to keep their families, their children in apartments. See, people people just really don't understand. So I'm asking you as a business person, wouldn't it be more honest if Biden and our representatives put pressures on the CEOs and the corporate world? Because we know they're the ones behind this, refusing to do it. And... Why wouldn't they come just with an honest, open-minded discussion? As a CEO, why wouldn't you say, okay, how can I afford to pay my workers, my employees who help build the company at least $15 an hour? What would have yeah. to happen in order for us to do that? Tom, bring the, have an honest discussion. They just cut it off at the path. No discussion. They just say no. And it is time yeah out for that so i'm, you're I'm, a I'm with you pam person so tom is it reason is it unreasonable to ask for 15 dollars an hour from small business from the no small it's not business? at all unreasonable and and any in my opinion any business that cannot afford to pay their workers 15 dollars an hour is operating on a flawed business model and should not continue to operate they should be replaced by a business that can, providing whatever service or product that they're providing, number one. Number two, if you look at the history of the minimum wage, all the way back to the 1930s, every time uh, an increase in the minimum wage has been proposed by Democrats, Republicans have come out screaming, saying it's going to lose jobs. The parliamentarian just said 1.4 million jobs will vanish as a result of the minimum wage going to $15 an hour. It has never, ever happened. Every single time the minimum wage has increased, the number of jobs out there has increased without exception. And so, you know, there may be changes in jobs, uh, but even that I think is going to be fairly minimal because you already have $15 minimum wages all over the country. You know, Florida just voted for one, for goodness sake. Um, it, it's it, So this is just 
core stuff. Uh, it's, it, people should not, as, as Bernie says, people sh- who are working full time, people who are saying, yes, I will, I will work full time. I'll put in my, my uh, piece of, you know, uh, my obligation to American society and the economy and everything else. I will devote my full time efforts to this particular job, whatever it may be. They should not be in poverty as a consequence of that choice. And, 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 and just, you know, it's seven bucks an hour. You got people in poverty. Fifteen thousand dollars a year. You can't live on fifteen thousand dollars a year. And Tom, to the wealthy, all we're asking is that you pay your fair share. We're not hating on you. We're not jealous or envious. You worked hard. You've made your money the honest way. You grew your company. Fine. But find a way to share that with the employees who helped build it. We, we're not. People want to act as if the poor and working class were just jealous. You know, we just people just want a decent income so they can feed their families, drive their vehicles, yep. pay their bills. Yep. There needs to be a basic floor to our society, an economic floor below which people don't fall. And, you know, sadly, I mean, literally in uh, Alabama and Mississippi, there is not, you know, the minimum wage in those states is zero. I mean, there's and literally no floor. of a great country, but that would be a mark of a great country. You have health care for agree. everyone. That's the I mark agree. of a great country. And education for everyone. Yes. 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 You're absolutely right. And that's, and that's the direction that we were heading at one point in time before the Reagan Revolution. We were moving in that direction very rapidly, and it was a good thing. And then, you know, uh, Reagan and the, and, the, and the conservative Republicans came along and blew it, blew it all to hell. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really sad, sad thing. Pam, thank you for the call. Your passion always comes through, and I appreciate it. More of the news of the day and your calls right here on the Tom Hartman Program. The place where smart people get their news. For our book today, we're reading from Elon Papp's book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. This is from the preface. It's titled The Red House. The Red House was a typical early Tel Avivian building, the pride of the Jewish builders and craftsmen who toiled over in the 1920s. It had been designed to house the head office of the local workers' council. It remained such until toward the end of 1947, it became the headquarters of the Haganah, the main Zionist underground militia in Palestine. Located near the sea on Yarkon Street in the northern part of Tel Aviv, the building formed another fine addition to the first Hebrew city in the Mediterranean, the White City as its literati and pundits affectionately called it. For in those days, unlike today, the immaculate whiteness of his houses still bathed the town as a whole, in the opulent brightness so typical of Mediterranean port cities of that era and that region. It was a sight for sore eyes, elegantly fusing Bauhaus motifs with native Palestinian architecture in an admixture that was called Levantine, in the least derogatory sense of the term. Such, too, was the Red House. Its simple rectangular features graced with frontal arches that framed the entrance and supported the balconies of its two upper stories. It was either its association with the workers' movement that had inspired the adjective red or its pinkish tinge that it acquired during sunset that had given the house its name. The former was more fitting as the building continued to be associated with the Zionist version of socialism when, in the 1970s, it became the main office for Israel's kibbutzim movement. Houses like this, important historical remnants of the mandatory period, prompted UNESCO in 2003 to designate Tel Aviv as a World Heritage Site. Today, the house is no longer there, a victim of development, which has raised this architectural relic to the ground to make room for a car park next to the new Sheraton Hotel. Thus, in this street, too, no trace is left of the white city, 
which it has slowly transmogrified into the sprawling, polluted, extravagant metropolis that is the modern Tel Aviv. In this building on a cold Wednesday afternoon, 10 March 1948, a group of 11 men, veteran Zionist leaders together with young military Jewish officers, put the final touches on a plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That same evening, military orders were dispatched to the units on the ground to prepare for the systematic expulsion of Palestinians from vast areas of the country. The orders came from a detailed description of the methods to be employed to forcibly evict the people. Large-scale intimidation, laying siege to and bombarding villages and population centers, setting fire to homes, properties, goods, expulsion, demolition, and finally planting mines among the rubble to prevent any of the expelled inhabitants from returning. Each unit was issued with its own list of villages and neighborhoods as the targets of the master plan. Codename Plan D, Dalit in Hebrew, this was the fourth and final version of less substantial plans that outlined the fate the Zionists had in store for Palestine and consequently for its native population. The previous three schemes had articulated only obscurely how the Zionist leadership contemplated dealing with the presence of so many Palestinians living in the land that the Jewish national movement coveted as its own. This fourth and last blueprint spelled it out clearly and unambiguously, quote, the Palestinians have to go, end quote. In the words of one of the first historians to note the significance of that plan, Simcha Flappen, the military campaign against the Arabs, including the conquest and destruction of the rural areas, was set forth in the Haganah's plan to let. The aim for the plan was, in fact, the destruction of both the rural and urban areas of Palestine. As the first chapters of this book will attempt to show, this plan was both the inevitable product of the Zionist ideological impulse to have an exclusively Jewish presence in Palestine, and a response to developments on the ground once the British cabinet had decided to end the mandate. Clashes with local Palestinian militias provided the perfect context and pretext for implementing the ideological vision of an ethnically cleansed Palestine. The Zionist policy was first based on retaliation against Palestinian attacks in February of 1947, and it transformed into an initiative to ethnically cleanse the country as a whole in March of 1948. Once the decision was taken, it took six months to complete the mission. When it was over, more than half of Palestine's native population, close to 800,000 people, had been uprooted. 531 villages had been destroyed, and 11 urban neighborhoods had been emptied of their inhabitants. The plan decided upon on 10 March 1948, and above all its systematic implementation in the following months, was a clear-cut case of ethnic cleansing operation, regarded under international law today as a crime against humanity. After the Holocaust, it has become impossible to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. Our modern communication-driven world, especially since the upsurge of electronic media, no longer allows human-made catastrophes to remain hidden from the public eye or to be denied. And yet one such crime has been erased almost totally from the global public memory, the disposition of the Palestinians in 1948 by Israel. This, the most formative element in the modern history of the land of Palestine, has ever since been systematically denied, and is still today not recognized as an historical fact, let alone acknowledged as a crime that needs to be confronted politically as well as morally. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, and the people who perpetrate it today are considered criminals to be brought before special tribunals. It may be difficult to decide how one ought to refer to or deal with in the legal sphere those who initiated and perpetrated ethnic cleansing in Palestine in 1948, but it's impossible to reconstruct their crimes Anyhow, it continues the ethnic cleansing of Palestine.
Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Speaking as a um, 9-11 truth activist for world peace, I want to talk about some of the similarities that I see on the attack on Washington, D.C. and the attack on 9-11. It's kind of ominous to me. Uh, head to the to a result that I'm. We were warned in advance of both and didn't do anything is, to prepare for either one. That is the number one thing foreknowledge, and we didn't do it. That would really bother me. The net result is that we're going to probably weaken the First Amendment rights and Fourth Amendment rights. Another have issue already, that have already I, done so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started on 9 11, it's going to ramp up here. Uh, another telltale issue is the finger pointing interagency and inter you know departmental finger pointing at, mm. at everybody else to be responsible probably the most difficult thing and worrying thing um that i have is the normal it's just another step forward in the normalization uh and and the increased militarization of our society this is going to be a really big step forward domestically for that and then another thing adding to that one is that there will eventually be more funds to the protection agencies and the intelligence agencies, you know, because, well, we didn't have enough funds to do this or whatever it might be. And I think the right. thing that, that, that bothers me above all, because I see this push, is that the last two, normalization of uh, militarization, militarizing of our society, okay, uh, and the additional funding to that is that they both are needed to protect our oligarchs' well-being, okay, as they expand into, you know, fascism and corporatocracy, as uh, John Perkins would say. So I, th I think there are very interesting parallels to that. And, and as we push towards a 9-11-like commission for this, I am hoping that you will share with us your points of view regarding the Warren Commission. And I already have my view about the 9-11 Commission and yeah. Lee Hamilton and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it, yeah, again, I've already it's, said that. In fact, I said troubling. it earlier today, Robin. I, I, you know, the Warren Commission whitewashed the mafia's participation in, in, uh, yeah. in the assassination of Kennedy. And the 9-11 Commission whitewashed Saudi Arabia's participation in 9-11. And also whitewashed the, 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 the warnings, essentially, that the Bush right. administration had going all the way back to, I mean, Sandy Berger on this program in 2009 came on the air on this program, said, you know, he was the national security advisor for the Clinton administration. And he came on this program and he said, I told Condoleezza Rice, look out, your number one risk is going to be that, that Osama bin Laden is going to attack the United States. And he said, and I personally know that Dick Cheney was told the same thing by Al Gore and that George W. Bush was told the same thing by Bill Clinton. He said, I know that. And they chose I to agree. ignore it. In fact, they laughed at right. us. They said, you guys are hysterical. You guys are obsessed with bin Laden. So Dick Cheney went about, you know, his energy commission putting together how, how we're going to split up the oil fields in Iraq. And the part, the security part that Dick Cheney was given two jobs by George W. Bush, you know, deal with this security issue that Clinton warned us about, about bin Laden. And his first meeting on that was in, Sept was in the last week of, of uh, August, right before 9-11. His first meeting. And then secondly, right, uh, you know, figure out how to make America energy independent. And, and Cheney's big solution to that was invade Iraq and split up the oil. It's the, it's the second right. largest supply of oil on, on the planet. 
Sorry, can I? So, can I? Robin, I got an alarm, but 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 I uh, no, I, I I just I don't want to turn the show into 9/11 here. Um, Rich in Indianapolis. Hey, Rich, what's up? Thank you, Tom. So good to hear you, man. I just wanted to make sure everybody had on their radar the reopening of the murder investigation of Malcolm X. His surviving daughters have reopened this investigation with new evidence that came forward. It was last weekend. I was shocked that it wasn't more well-known in the circles that I traveled. I talked it about, uh, about it on this program, about the guy who left the, awesome. the deathbed oh, confession. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. Now we, look, the idea that COINTELPRO was busy wiping people out, and the thing that, that really struck me was when I told people, they would say, oh, yeah, I really know that. I mean, isn't that just out there? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What you're saying is the same thing I heard about Watergate. You tell me that, oh, it's politics, and both sides do it, don't they? No. No, 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 no. The holy criminal enterprise of the Nixon administration. This guy's deathbed confession was that it was the FBI and the NYPD, and, and he was one of the guys who had infiltrated and had infiltrated Malcolm X's organization. Spot on. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. Thank you so much for helping keep our program going, and thanks to all the great folks you know, across the board and all of our affiliates, everybody who carries this show, carries this show. And thank you to you for listening, for participating, for calling and telling your friends about it. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.